Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle, along with my co-host, Rachel Santizo. You're, break, you're breaking tradition today, Rachel. Yeah, uh, usually, I am. Rachel has a, a t-shirt that, that expresses an important message and nothing today. No, I, I've run out of shirts, Randall. Um, but I have, I'm still wearing the elephant lanyard. I feel if I don't have this shirt, at least if I wear this, then I'm still showing up. Well, it's it's nice to see you, Rachel. Thank this you. is the, one of the most watched podcasts dealing with addiction and recovery. And you can watch it on YouTube or you can listen to it on Spotify, iHeart, iTunes, just about anywhere. All you got to do is Google uh, Odyssey House Journals and it'll take you to it. So. We welcome everybody if you're new and we urge you to hit subscribe so you get notified. This is our, I think it's our 87th wow. podcast. We've been doing this for a while. Amazing. That's awesome. I came across a news story and, and being an old news guy, I always ask why and I can't get an ex, I can't figure an explanation for this. Uh, it says pandemic lockdowns may have led to less commuter traffic, but they didn't lead to safer roads. Almost twice as many people died in alcohol-involved crashes in Utah roads in 2020 as they did in 2019. There were 32 fatal crashes involving booze in 2019 and 61 in 2020. I'm trying to figure out why that is. Well, there was a rise in um, alcohol use during the pandemic. There was. So that makes sense to me. So if there was a rise in alcohol use, you going to go get alcohol or getting in the car, even though there was less travel, if there's still more use when you get in the car. So I think that that could make sense. I guess that makes sense. I, yeah. I'm a recovering alcoholic. And the one thing I always tried not to do was drive when I was drinking. <laughs> so, so knock on wood, I never got a DUI, but uh, I, I was very lucky. Hey, our guest today, is Nancy Holland. Nancy, if you want to click on, zoom in, I guess we could say. There she is. Hello. This, even though she's a beautiful woman uh, and she looks very young, uh, <laughs> I, I've got to share that she and I grew up in the same little town in Ohio, and we have known of each other for well over 50 years. Can you That's imagine right. that? That is right. Yep. I went to uh, I went to elementary school with Randall's uh, sister. Believe it or not, how old are you, Rachel? I am forty-two. Although you should never ask, I'm not. I, I know that. I know, but this is an honest <laughs> podcast, so that means right. that, that means we've known of each other uh, at, since before you were born. That's right. That's incredible. <laughs> Well, the reason I invited Nancy to be in our podcast is not because we were childhood friends or that we grew up in the same town. You know, there's an ex expression that addiction is a family disease. And, and Rachel, you working at Odyssey and me working at Odyssey, we talked to a lot, of, a lot of addicts who will say stuff like, well, it's me, I just wanted to get high and it's none of your business. And it doesn't affect anybody else. And so what I do to myself is my own business, which is not the case. And Nancy, maybe you could tell us how addiction affected you. And this is a sad story. And thank you for sharing it. 
Yeah, it, I've I've been <clears throat> anticipating this with uh, some trepidation, let's say. I'm sure. The hard story to tell. Um, so my son, Stephen, discovered he was an alcoholic when he was 16 and had his first beer and his, he could he couldn't stop drinking and his friends could. We did not know that at the time. We only found that out later. But when he was 17, he was he took five different overdoses in five months with five different substances. Mm. It was Robitussin, alcohol, Percocet, Ambien, and Benadryl. And he would look up on the internet how much was a, an overdose, would, how much was lethal, and he'd take just under that amount. So we were in the emergency room five times in five months, and he went into various facilities temporarily during that time. But we were so afraid that something was going to happen to him. And we had an educational consultant who helped us decide what to do to keep him safe. Um, we ended up sending him to a wilderness program in Utah. Um, and that was a rehab program for several months and then a residential program and then a sober living program. He was in rehab for about a year and a half and he did have some sobriety during that time. And I'm very grateful for the time that he was sober and we got to talk and he apologized for his behavior and he took some responsibility for it. And after he was in sober living, um, he got into a program that he had an apartment, he was going to school and he had a job and his job was helping um, a child in a mainstream school who had autism. And he came to me and he was ADHD growing up. So he was a real handful. And he said, mom, I don't know how you had the patience. <laughs> And it was really nice to hear that. Um, and so he was recovering and we thought he was doing well. And then we found out that he was hooked on heroin. And we took him to a counselor at that point. And the counselor said, you cannot kick this on your own. This is, you've really got to go back into treatment. And he didn't want to. And fortunately, I had been in Al-Anon enough by that time to know that if he didn't want to go to treatment, it wasn't going to do any good. And we couldn't make him because he was 21. And, and fortunately, I had a sponsor and I called my sponsor and I said, what do I do? She said, you tell him that you love him and that you'll always love him no matter what you, what he does. And that's what we did. And that was the last thing I said to him because he died of an overdose at age 21. And this is now 11 years ago. So I have some perspective on it, but I miss him every day and it still hurts. So yes, what you do does affect your family. Um, his sister and his girlfriend had to drop out of school. They suffered from depression and grief and anger and guilt. And it was really hard on all of us. Um, my husband and I found that marriage counseling was really helpful because it was a place we could talk about Stephen. And it wasn't, we were just too, too sad to talk about him otherwise. 
My saving grace was Al-Anon. I had found a year before, two years before Stephen died, I had found a group of moms of addicts. And that was really helpful. Um, I discovered that I didn't cause it and I couldn't cure it. And that my road was to be as supportive and as loving as I could without engaging and without supplementing enabling enabling that's the word thank you yeah um so the this group of moms comforted one another i found community i found refuge um and it helped me even go through the time when he was in rehab and residential programs and 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 struggling yeah yeah can you explain to our viewers what Al-Anon is Sure. Al-Anon is a a group for family members of um, alcoholics and addicts. And um, it helps us keep to our own path and not interfere and not we and, and to discover that we cannot fix what's going on with our loved one. Which of course every every parent wants to do when they of have course. a child with an issue. Just want to come in and fix it, and um, and letting go. One of the the most important lessons I learned was not resenting the alcoholic. And we have a saying, which I'm sure you've heard: it, resentment is like taking poison and expecting the rat to die. <laughs> <laughs> and it does poison you. Resentment really does poison you and negative thoughts poison you. And I, I wrote a whole journal full of what ifs after Stephen died saying, well, what if I had done this? What if I had done this differently? And um, it helped to get it out. It helped to talk to my therapist about it. But in the end, I couldn't have, I don't think I could have changed it. My, I, have, I had two brothers. One is a recovering alcoholic and goes to AA meetings several times a week, and the other one is dead. And, I, you know, that's, that's how I feel about alcoholism. It's you either recover or, or you die. You know, and I think one of the things that you, that you brought up and Rachel and I see every day is when you wanted him to go back to rehab and he didn't want to you accepted the fact, and, and, they, and we see this all the time, is if you don't want help, uh, you can't be forced into getting help. You can be forced to be somewhere, but that doesn't mean you're gonna have to buy, uh, buy into the program or anything else. Right, yeah, and I mean, we saw him, you know, in a year and a half, go through so much recovery. You know, learn meditation techniques and yoga and, um, you know, just so many things that helped him recover, go through all of the steps. And, and, uh, but unfortunately it was interesting because there was a time when one of his friends, cause you know, you meet a lot of addicts in recovery, um, overtoast and, and was found alone in a hotel room 
And I found this out when Stephen found it out. And I said, oh, Stephen, I hope that doesn't happen to you. He said, oh, no, Mom, it won't happen to me because I'm different. And that's another thing that I've discovered about alcoholics and addicts is that each person thinks they're different. Each person thinks the rules don't apply to me. I'm going to kick this. He thought at the end of his life, he thought he was going to kick heroin on his own. And, you know, despite all evidence to the contrary, um, and I do think, you know, one of the things the counselor said three days before he died was, you can't kick this on your own. And there's every possibility that you won't know what you're getting when you get the heroin. And it will be more, you know, you can take what the same amount you've taken before, and it will be a lethal dose. So I feel like we gave him all of the tools we gave him all the knowledge that he needed, but it's it's an insidious disease. My brother, as I said, is a recovering alcoholic, and at Stephen's memorial service, he said, what Stephen died of was a fatal disease. And I, I think that's that's really true. Yeah, and more people, and there's there still is, it's, it's getting better, but there still is a stigma uh, surrounding this that people consider it uh, a moral uh, failing yeah. as opposed to a physical disease right and 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 i should point out i i mean you know your your son i mean you you're you you're a family that didn't have any trouble with finances okay that is and correct so, and so he grew up in a in a very loving very comfortable environment that's right Okay. And I'm sure that when Stephen said that, he meant that, you know, in that moment, for, for my experience is that my recovery, I have to work on every day. My intentions are good. And when I say it, I don't want to use and I don't want to overdose and I don't want to do these things. But if I don't put in the daily work, that's what I'm going to do. If I don't every day work on this, then I'm going to because that's ultimately how I'm built even if I have the um, genuine, even if I genuinely do not want to use, if I don't daily work on this, I'm going to, because I am just built that way. I'm, in, I'm in the same boat. I mean, it's like, you know, I, you know, I've got, I've got nine years, you and I both have the same number of years clean, Rachel, nine. Uh, and, and I know still that if I had just one drink right now, it would turn into 20 and I couldn't control it. But I have to, I have to go to AA meetings, and I have to. Uh, well, working at Odyssey makes it easier because you're reminded every day about what goes on. But it, it's it's a complicated, lifelong disease, and 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 I think the people who succeed are the people who are humbled by the fact. And and, and Nancy, you said he he thought, okay, I can, I can handle this. I can do that. And I used to think that all the time. I said, well, I, you know, I, I choose to keep drinking, but I could stop if I wanted to. So, so Stephen may have been humbled by the wilderness program, but obviously wasn't totally humbled to the disease. No, no, he really wasn't. Um, and, you know, and I, <laughs> I, I was inspired by him after he died. 
I found some journals of his and I was, I was struggling, you know, in my own work. I actually had started a doctoral program in choral conducting the year before he died. And when we found out that he was addicted to heroin, I was taking summer courses and I said to Stephen, should I just stop taking classes and just focus on you and, and, you know, try and try and help you? He said, no, mom, you should do your own thing, which was really helpful. And um, there were some times when I was struggling and he said, you can do it, mom, you can do it. And that, that keeps playing in my head. And I was uh, preparing for a recital where I had 30 singers and instrumentalists and I was facing the rehearsals and it was just a year after he had died. And I thought it wasn't even a year. And I, I don't know if I can do this. And there was the sun was shining on his journals in the garage where we had just put them and, you know, put them away. And I thought, oh, I'll open up a box. I looked in the journal and he said, I could achieve so much if I wasn't so afraid of failure. Hmm. And I thought, okay, thanks, Stephen. I got to do this. And I went and I did my recital. And I actually, my therapist helped me through. And I think it's true for all of us. I would say to her, I don't know if I can finish this degree. This is this is too much. There's too much work. And she said, well, can you do this one assignment? Can you take this first step? I said, yeah, I can do that. And you would, I would just take one step. I would take it a day at a time, <laughs> like we do our recovery. And I finished the degree. Wow. And I ended up conducting the Brahms Requiem with chorus and orchestra which was just way beyond my dreams. I just didn't think that was even, that was possible. But Stephen helped me by saying, you know, go for it, mom, you can do it. I do think there's a blessing in the fact that he's not suffering anymore. You know, I've talked, because I had this mom's Al-Anon meeting, there were moms, you know, I would go back after he died, although not much because Nobody really wanted to hear my story because it's the it's what every parent dreads. Right. Um, but some other moms would say, you know, he's not suffering. And and some of their children were, you know, not happy when they were using and not happy when they weren't using. And so they just weren't happy. But I'll always love him and I'll always miss him. And what I want to say to parents or anybody who is a family member of someone who's struggling. The most important thing I said as a sponsee, as, as a sponsor and a sponsee and as a sponsor, I said, what do you do to bring joy into your life? Because if you focus on the positive, it helps counteract all of the negative thoughts that are going through your head. And the things that I've found that have helped have been nature, you know, just walking on the beach, walking in a garden, um, therapy, the one step at a time pros, meditation, yoga, exercise, music, and friends. And friends can be supportive to a certain extent, although Al-Anon friends are the ones who really understand what you're going through. Yeah, we have a family support group here at Odyssey. Oh, that's good. And, and the hardest thing is, is to not let 
your loved one's addiction become your addiction. And, and so many people are, I think, I think it's safe to say most addicts are not really happy, but, uh, but, but to let their unhappiness or their addiction make you unhappy and screw up your life. And that's, but that's a hard, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, you know, logically people, the parents will say, yeah, I know that's what I should be doing, but I, but I, I just can't stop thinking about my kid who's in jail or on the street or who's homeless or whatever, you know, right. and, and you make it sound like it does take work, right? It's really hard work. And I mean, many times when I've asked a first time Alaman member who has come to a meeting, I've said, what brings you joy? There's this long, long silence because they haven't thought about it for such a long time. They've been caught up in all of the negativity, all of the horror um, and tragedy that surrounds them. And it's really hard to think about your own happiness when there's so much unhappiness around you. Yeah. We frequently ask, you know, what, what do you do to make yourself happy? Mm -hmm. The same thing you ask about joy. Yeah. And, and there's generally a really long pause and it's like, Hmm. Uh, uh, I don't know. No. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a weird thing that focusing on joy is something you need to do in order to get all of those negative thoughts. I mean, you can't get the negative thoughts out of your head. I mean, that's just not possible, but in order to counterbalance them. And it sounds weird that you have to work on being happy. Yeah. Well, you know? yeah. If there's addiction in your family, that's definitely, that's definitely the case. When you have a, a child and say that they're, they're struggling, but they're refusing to go to treatment, right? Like that is, that's hard. Cause when you have, when your child is suffering, you're suffering, but you have to hold up the boundaries because because what the difference is, is it's, it's, it's your child, but it's also drugs are very powerful. So at that point, it's really the drugs and the alcohol that is taking over. And when they're refusing treatment or services, what do you do? How do you maintain your joy and your boundaries? What do you, what do you suggest or what's your advice to the parents or the loved ones that are listening? Yeah, it, it's, it's really a challenge. Um, and, you know, part of me thinks that, as, as I said, it's a blessing because we envisioned, you know, we were, we were planning to cut off financial support for Stephen. He would have been on the street. And that's when it becomes really horrific because you just don't know from day to day what's happening to your child. And really the only thing you can do is to focus on your own life and try to um, carry on. I, I do think Al-Anon meetings help, particularly when, you're, when your child's on the street or your child's struggling, is just find a meeting. And I, I discovered that not all meetings are the same and that you really have to find the right meeting, the meeting that appeals to you, that you find supports you in the way that you need to be supported. And um, so try a lot of them. But that's what I found with AA meetings as yeah. well. Right. Which, which is virtually the same, only I, 
Well, I mean, the only difference it's it's relatives or, or loved ones of addicts at Al-Anon and for, for AA, it's the addict. You know? Yeah, exactly. And you, yeah, you do have to find the right meaning and find a sponsor. I just, I found my sponsor just invaluable and go through the steps, doing the work of going through the steps for the loved one is just as important as doing it um, for the addict. Um, there's a friend of mine I was talking to yesterday. She doesn't know what her son's using now, but he's keeping her from seeing her grandchild, which is just so painful. And I told her, go get a sponsor, do the steps. And she's doing it. And I can see that even though she's still struggling, it's helping her. It's helping her focus on her own life. And, and it, you know, her son is not allowing her to be a part of her life, his life right now. So, and it's tough, it's tough particularly when you have a grandchild that you want to be a part of part of their life and they're not and they're not allowing it rachel's a new grandma so you can oh congratulations oh i understand i think that that critical important piece is is the understanding that the more that we work on on uh, you were breaking up and freezing there rachel that we can be available and healthy for i was yeah, but you're okay now. So relay that again. So I think because the more we can work on ourselves. Yeah, the the critical piece is that the Al-Anon, the sponsorship, um, it's important that we work on ourselves so that if or when our loved one is ready, then we're a safe space and yeah. we're healthy for them. Yeah. Um. So if it if it's grandchildren or whatever the outcome may be, and it may be more tragic than other, but we're we're that space where we can show up or we can be that safe space or healthy space for them. So it is so important that we do our work. So we can yeah, it, it reminds me of when I went to see Stephen and when he was in his residential program and he was sober and he was doing his work and he was editing the newspaper and I had done my work in Al-Anon and we had the best week. We just, you know, we, we played together. And at one point, Stephen said, you know, we don't have to do all the touristy stuff. We could just sit and talk. And, you know, for a mom, <laughs> that's, that's the biggest reward possible. And you're right. If we do our own work, then we're a safe space when they're ready. Nancy, and, that was the best moment I've seen from you this entire yeah. Oh, it was... It was precious, and I will I will be forever grateful for that week that I had with him. You know, people watching this would say, "My gosh, she's she's taken such a positive approach uh, to such a horrible tragedy in her life." Uh, this is not something that happened overnight for you, right? Absolutely not. No, we were devastated the first year, and that's the other thing. I mean, if if there's somebody watching this who has just lost someone, it takes time. I mean, the day after we found Stephen dead, we just all went for a walk on the beach. It, we couldn't do anything. And I don't think we did much that first summer. He died in June. And in fact, this is the anniversary of his memorial service. Wow. Okay. 
Uh, and, you know, just I particularly, I, I'm that kind of person. I just kept trying things. I kept trying meditation. I kept trying yoga. I kept trying different classes and different teachers and massage and, you know, whatever would work. And then when I went back to school, I found I couldn't sing. Because every time I tried to sing, I would start to cry. And so even though, because it was a choral conducting class, we were required to sing for our fellow conductors. My conducting teacher said, you just do what you can. They were really supportive. They were really understanding. And, um, and I just, I did what I could. I, I went part-time. I didn't take some classes. I took some classes and not others. And I did what I could. But yeah, it's a long process. It is a very long process. One of the benefits, <laughs> sidelines, silver linings that I've discovered in having a tragedy like this in your life is that you become so much more compassionate for other people. And I've found that I can be a resource for um, people who are going through um, loss. And there's a wonderful book um, called uh, Healing Healing Loss, and it's Meditations on, on, on Losing a Loved One by Martha Hickman, which I, I give to everybody. It's, uh, it's really helpful. Well, thank you very much for being on this and sharing your story. I, I know it was difficult. Who'd have ever thought while you were a little kid going to that elementary school that I went to in Worcester, Ohio, we would end up on a podcast decades later talking about the death of your child or me talking about being in recovery from alcoholism. But uh, that's the way life turns out, I guess. It is. Yeah. I, thank you so much for inviting me, Randall. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Rachel. It's so lovely to meet you. You as well. Thank you. Um, also for being a part of this and sharing such a such a heartfelt day with us as well. Like it's an honor to share this day with you. And so thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. And, and, as well. and, and I'm thinking, you know, hearing your story will help uh, hopefully a lot of other people who are in the same boat and God knows there are a lot of them. So I know I, you know, the more I tell my story, the more I discover people who are affected by alcoholism or addiction. It's uh, it's universal. It's, it's hard to escape. for being with us. And thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.